Hey, 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 everybody. How's it going? This is Don, and thanks for being here. This is the Today's Just Okay podcast. For newcomers, welcome. And for people who are back, welcome back. I'm glad to have you here. Anyway, for the first timers among us, in terms of what you can expect from this show, basically, I'm here to talk about topics of interest and basically looking at it from a perspective that is more balanced through a critical lens as opposed to reactionary or sensationalist or outrage or anything like that. I'm not here to talk about who you're supposed to be angry at or why we're supposed to not get along or who we're supposed to hate or blame for all the world's problems. I'm more about recognizing that we have a lot more in common than we might think. And honestly, aren't we all just a little bit tired of being kind of constantly on edge anyway? Moving on, it is late February. Good morning or afternoon or evening, whenever it is that you happen to be consuming this. Hope the weather is good, the season is okay, your job is doing well, life is fine, etc., etc. And if you're stuck in traffic, you have my sympathies. It's funny, it's late February and I'm sitting in my bedroom trying to kind of chill out a little bit. And it's been thunderstorms all day today. Hours and hours of lightning and power flickers and you name it. Just noise and annoyance. Um, so that's been that's been super fun today. But even so, still managed to get a bunch done. The usual work and various other things. Chores, as they say. Today's topic is going to be conspiracy theories. I think that's fertile ground for thought-provoking conversation. Just going to talk about, you know, what they are. I mean... It's not like nobody knows what they are. I think we all have a pretty good idea of what conspiracy theories are, but I'm also going to talk a little bit about like why they spread and how they kind of, how they gain traction, what fuels the fire that feeds those things. And then what we can do when we come across one or someone we care about comes across one, how to approach those situations, right? Because again, it's, it's funny in the sense that some conspiracy theories turn out to be true and others not so much. Some are ridiculous, some are downright hurtful or harmful or dangerous, uh, and then some are completely harmless and a little bit funny, or alternatively, they could actually be real, right? And so being skeptical is good, but also being open enough to absorb new ideas is also important, right? So there's there's a bit of a balancing act that we have to kind of go through when we're dealing with these things. So anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, in a bit, but first, um, let's talk about some interesting things that have happened in my life recently. So, uh, finished up clinic a couple of weeks ago. So for any of you who are in a situation where you've got chronic health conditions and you have the opportunity to go to a specialist clinic, my suggestion is do it. Um, even if, even if it's a pain in the butt, even if it, doesn't seem like it's helping that much. You know, I just finished an eight week course and I can honestly say that as much as let's say half of the stuff I either already knew or doesn't work for me, the other half will. And so I've already started incorporating those things into just kind of living better and, you know, eating, eating better and exercising a little bit more and keeping my movement up and that type of thing. And looking at things through a different perspective, right? These are things that really do have a major impact on our health. So again, if you're in a situation where you're struggling with some stuff and you have the opportunity to participate in some kind of a class, some kind of group, in some kind of specialty clinic, whatever it is, I say go simply because the worst that can happen is you'll be distracted for a while. And the best that can happen is you're going to come away with some new tools, new information, new ideas, 
that might actually make it easier and more helpful or less of a pain in the ass, basically, to get up in the morning every day, right? And to keep going and keep doing what you need to do. So got to say the clinic at McMaster University that I went to, very lovely, very nice people, very good content, that type of thing. Uh, also, let's see, February the 2nd, I spoke at McMaster University. So the Poetry and Creative Writing Society put out put on an event that I talked at. So big shout out to them for hosting my talk on professional writing and becoming a published author. It was very introductory. Um, I had a good turnout. I was super happy about that. 20 to 30 kids showed up. Well, kids, students, adults. I mean, I'm old, so I kind of feel like people are kids, but they're not. And I hope I hope they enjoyed it as much as I did. Honestly, they clapped at the beginning, they clapped in the middle and they clapped at the end. So either they're super polite or I didn't completely mess it up. Definitely miss being in front of people. I don't know what it is. For some reason, I just find it to be a blast. I really enjoy it. It's an, it's a nice rush. It's a nice feeling and it's enjoyable to pass on some information, right? I mean, I know that a lot of the stuff that I talked about is, is relatively introductory. I did put a clip up on my YouTube channel. So there'll be a link of that in the description for the podcast, but basically, yeah, it's just a, um, it's just an introductory show or an introductory talk on what things to think about when you're, when you want to do writing as a career. So whether it's fiction, nonfiction, professional, whatever it is that you plan on doing as a, as a writer, things to think about and things that people don't often think about, especially when they're young, like ergonomics and self-care and the importance of stretching and movement and that type of thing, right? You, you lose those things as you get older and you injure yourself and that can really mess you up later on. So a lot of good information, I think. Anyway, definitely could have talked a bit more about other stuff. And I guess that's kind of the trouble of trying to fit so many topics into a tiny package. It's funny, I, it ended up taking like two hours and then I answered questions for another half hour afterwards. And unfortunately, my camera died halfway through, so I only got the first half on video. So I have to probably either record a new video for the second half, or maybe I'll do the talk again sometime in the future. Um, but yeah, if you're interested, check out the YouTube channel at Don Does Stuff 2, D-O-N-D-O-E-S-S-T-U-F-F-T-O-O. Or you can just visit my website, donrmontgomery.com, and the link will be there as well. Anyway, the, the whole point of doing it was to try and give students new information and perspective and specifically open their eyes a little bit in terms of how the industry has changed in the last 20 years, right? How you can get in easier if you develop a network of contacts or a following online and basically just in an overview of how to approach it, what tools you need, and then how to focus that energy into the work, right? So anyway, I had a great time. I do hope that they uh, have me back at some point because I'd like to, I'd like to do some more in that realm. And obviously it being the first go at the presentation, I think I could do better next time. So it's something that I can revise and improve on. And then likewise, you know, there's workshops and stuff like that, that I think would be fun to do as well. How to write uh, query letters and how to do your first submission and, you know, how to keep your, how to keep your sort of mojo up, how to, how to maintain your positivity in the face of never ending failure. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Creativity is, is an interesting industry. Anyway, long and the short of it is I just want to be a resource, you know, like I had a heck of a time when I was younger trying to find information on what it was like out there and you know, what you had to do about like, for example, if you want to do fiction, how getting short story credits, publication credits with uh, magazines or making sure you get those when you're young and the difference between pro and semi-pro markets, you know, what 
places pay, what things to avoid. For example, if people want you to pay them to publish your stuff, you know, that's obviously something that you don't want to do. You're producing the work, so you should always get paid. And just things like that. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of potential for the younger generation. And I just, God, I really want to see them do well. And if there's anything that I can do to help that, obviously I'm going to do that. So, I mean, if you are a writer or, a, you know, someone working in that area and you're just at your wit's end, you don't know what to what to do next or something like that, send the podcast a little message at, um, what is it? Today's just okay at gmail.com. And I will get back to you. It's funny. Speaking of enjoying talking to people. So I was having a conversation with my wife and started my story by saying, so I was talking to myself and, and she stopped me right there. Like literally in the middle of the sentence, she held up her hand and everything. And she was just like, you need to make more friends. And I did not even realize how ridiculous opening with that made me sound. But I mean, I've been talking to myself since I was a kid, right? It's, it's a way to practice, uh, conversations. It's a way to psych myself up when I need to get going or need to work through problems or think about stuff. I'm not having a conversation back and forth between two people. I'm just imagining potentials and responses and I'm figuring out how to deal with that. Anyway, I just do it because I've always done it. You know, I grew up in the country. I was too young to play with my older brothers and sisters, and I was too young, too old to play with my younger brother and sister. And it's not exactly like there were a bunch of kids on my street. I think like the nearest, the nearest neighbor was a kilometer down the road or whatever. So I had to keep myself amused. And that eventually turned into running a monologue with my toys while I was playing little army men and GI Joes and stuff like that. And then I guess it just kind of turned into a way to organize my thoughts and process things as, as I get older still. It's, it's pretty weird to say that to someone else. <laughs> All right, let's get into the, let's get into the topic of the day, shall we? So let's look at conspiracy theories. What are they? So as I said earlier, you probably already know, but the definition, as they say, is that they are a belief that some secret but influential organization is responsible for an event or phenomenon. So it can be government agencies or corporations or the news or wealthy people or political parties, scientists, doctors, and even cabal of regular people masquerading, or I should say special people masquerading as regular people. The point is it's always based on incomplete information. There's usually misunderstandings or anecdotes involved. So just personal observations as well as cynical manipulations. So a lot of people are playing with facts to push their own sort of ideology or their, their own narrative that suits their needs and makes them money. Right. And what's really funny about them or what's really strange about them is that despite all of these things, despite the fact that they're, they're based on complete information and misunderstandings and all the rest of it, sometimes they turn out to be true. And that's just enough fuel to keep the engine running. I mean, if every conspiracy theory turned out to be false, then guess what? No one would believe them because there'd never been a true example ever. But the reality is, is that governments do hide things. Corporations do hide things. News agencies twist things. Politicians, your neighbor, people lie all the time. And so that dishonesty and then finding out that those people or those things are dishonest or hidden or whatever, that breeds the the expectation that sometimes these things are in fact true, right? Now, there's plenty of conspiracy theories out there that are absolutely terrible. For example, Holocaust denialism 
or that mass shootings in the United States are false flag operations. Some are easily disproven, like the Earth is flat, the moon landing is fake, or even the moon is fake. It's made of cheese. I can't remember who said that. And, uh, you know, COVID is about controlling us with 5G towers, stuff like that. And some are just plain weird, like Loch Ness and Bigfoot. Hang on a second, I need a drink of coffee. My throat is getting dry here. You know, there's a lot of different flavors involved. And then, again, as I mentioned earlier, some turn out to be true. Like cigarettes companies knew they caused cancer. Gas companies knew leaded fuel was poisonous. There were experiments in subliminal advertising. Government experiments with the atomic bomb or stealing bodies or using LSD and looking into ways to control minds and that type of thing. Global surveillance programs, you name it. It's, it's been done, right? So it's not that hard to see why these, these ideas are so entrenched. I mean, even when I was younger, like I grew up in the 80s and I was convinced drug companies had a cure for AIDS. Um, but they just didn't want to release it because it would cost them too much money in the long run, right? There's more money in treating a condition or an illness than there is in curing it. And the reality is I just did not understand what HIV was or how that works. Same thing with cancer, right? Like the illnesses don't work the way we envision them. There's too many variables. There's too many mutations. There's too many different things going on that make it very difficult for a single compound or, you know, cure type thing to work, right? I think we're getting closer in some, some aspects of these, but it's like my belief in those, those ideas was more bred out of the fact that I didn't understand what I was talking about. And it just seemed to make sense. Having said all of that, I mean, that kind of explains why conspiracy theories exist and why we believe them and why they spread so easily. And again, these are my thoughts. They're not definitive. So I'm curious what you think about it. Let me know at todaysjustokay at gmail.com. And if you've, if you've got a good conspiracy theory that, you know, just kind of <laughs> makes you laugh, I don't want to get into too dark territory, but if you've got kind of a bit of a funny conspiracy theory that you've ever heard of, let me know. I'm, I'd be curious to share it with the, with the group. All right. So when we go back to conspiracy theories and why they exist, I mean, again, there's no one answer. I think one of the things that we need to get out of our heads is that people don't believe them because they're stupid. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some people are dumb and some people are easily taken advantage of, but that's not the majority of us. By and large, a lot of people who believe in conspiracies are regular functional people with meaningful relationships and they are capable of intelligent discussion. All right. More on that in a little bit. Now, I think it's pretty, pretty much common sense that conspiracy theories help fill in details we don't have explain the world around us when we when we don't have access to information or we don't understand or can't explain why things are the way they are and more importantly they have great public relations conspiracy theories have amazing pr their messaging is on point it's short it's simple it can be explained in a sentence or two it's it's literally like your perfect elevator pitch i mean take flat earthers if you look at their content it's like look at the horizon it's flat so the world's flat like how there's no fat on the bone there. It's literally like, I see a flat thing, the earth is flat. And then you get into other things like gravity. Like if gravity pulls us downwards and I try to stick something on the side of a ball, it falls off. So if the world is round, we'd see the curve and we'd fall off the side. Understanding that gravity doesn't work like that, that's part of the issue. 
So again, these types of conspiracy theories are based on anecdotal evidence and observation, and generally they spread from person to person just through conversation and discussion, or you can also get this stuff spread from a surprising number of social leaders. So they can be religious or political figures, they can be business people, they can be pundits. And when you look at those folks, when you look at them and why they're spreading these things, the rule of thumb I have is just follow the money. They've got a reason for saying that. It could just be to draw you in, but more often than not, it's because they're trying to sell something or get you plugged into some kind of an ecosystem so that they can start farming money off you. But I think the most important part of this is is that you don't need to spend a lot of time investigating conspiracy theories. Like someone tells you what they are, they kind of make sense. And if you don't want to get deep into the, into the weeds, you don't have to, you can just be like, all right, well, I guess that's how it is. And you don't have to do any background reading. You don't have to do any research or fact checking. You know, the ideas are simple to understand. And frankly, when so few of us have the time and the energy to do all that, when we spend so much of our lives inundated with work and responsibilities and the mental exhaustion and nonstop infotainment and entertainment that we're just constantly bombarded with, it's no, it's no wonder that we're just all kind of like, oh God, I don't have time for this. Okay, fine. That's, that's the way it is. Divided attention and the bam, bam, bam of constant crap coming at us makes it easier for these ideas to gain traction, I think. So again, Easy to understand, take very little time, seem true based on what we can see or rumors we've heard, and they're reinforced by the information networks we rely on, right? Social media, message boards, news, etc. I mean, if you if you look at a story about aliens and you're logged into one of your accounts, the algorithm's going to recognize that you looked at that and how much time you spent with it and all the rest of it. And then those things are going to start feeding you more of that content and sort of start drawing you into that stuff. Because I mean, the algorithms, they don't care what you're into. They just want to keep you engaged so that they can sell advertising. So their goal is to just give you more stuff that you like so that you spend more time looking at your screen. Like I'm not being a hundred percent negative here. Like I do think that it can kind of be a little bit of fun to dip your toe in and get a taste of the strangeness out there, open your mind up a little bit to new ideas. But I also don't think that it's healthy to go whole hog in, right? Skepticism is good for you. It is good for everyone. We shouldn't believe everything the powers that be tell us. And likewise, we shouldn't believe everything that Bob or Chuck or, you know, Skinflint 2099 or whatever the hell on the internet says either. So why do we believe them? And this is, this is where I had to do some research, right? Because I wasn't actually sure. And a whole hosts of reasons, uh, have sort of been identified and it comes down to personality traits and belief systems. So psychologists have studied this subject a lot. So there's some scientific basis for what I'm about to say. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass, right? And what they found is that people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories if they are worried about control or security um, or their sense of understanding and certainty in an uncertain world. So like if you're thinking about complex events or social change or upheaval or economic uncertainty, you look at the environment, food supply, personal, national identity, threats to safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things can affect how open we are to conspiracy theories, because if we have all that anxiety and anxiousness about this stuff, 
we're going to be looking for an explanation that makes sense and gives us that peace of mind. Are you seeking a sense of belonging or positive self-image? If you're insecure about yourself or your place in the world, if you want to feel special or even superior, or if you feel victimized by the way things are and find a sense of belonging and community with people who believe the same things as you, that can open you up to this stuff as well. Likewise, confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance, big words, basically means you like information that confirms you're right and you don't like being wrong. Or worse, you can't handle being wrong at all. So if you are prone to reject evidence that contradicts your idea of what is right and what is wrong, or you're not willing to open your mind or open, open yourselves up to potentially different ways of looking at things, you know, you might reject anything that contradicts what you believe, and that can further entrench the misconceptions you have. You can fall into this by illusory pattern perception. You can overgeneralize or use emotional reasoning and intuition as opposed to scientific evidence and that type of thing, right? So in other words, you see connections in various different events or people or whatever, and you start creating a story out of them. You don't have the details, so your brain naturally just uses its creativity to come up with an explanation to link all these things together and go with how it feels right as opposed to what the documents or the evidence are. So your gut feelings and emotions are tied together, and that can lead us to go a little bit overboard in the conclusions we come to, right? X happened, so Y must be true. So that's how you go from unidentified objects equals aliens. When it could be any number of other things, it could be a camera or instrument malfunction, a secret project, atmospheric anomaly, et cetera, et cetera. Like crop circles became a phenomenon back in like the the late seventies, I think. And it turned out to be a couple of artists messing around in England, right? This guy named Doug Bower and David, Dave Chorley. Uh, they, they created them as kind of a, you know, a drunken side project, basically, I think. I don't know. You have to read up on it to kind of get your, get your head around what they were doing, but then imitators and and various other things, right? They've spread all around the world. Again, it's all about creating mystery and creating excitement or whatever. You get your jollies off of it, but then you convince a bunch of people that something strange is happening in your neighborhood. Anyway, point is there's a lot of different ways these things come into being and they spread and then they get entrenched. So how do we how do you deal with them? Right? So there's a reasonable part, right? So most conspiracy theories are harmless. You know, you've got the Loch Ness monster, you've got Bigfoot. And I mean, these are just fun diversions. You can sell merch off of it, right? And you can buy merch off of it and you can have a good time. There's nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of them that aren't. Those ones always target or attack specific groups of people or ways of thinking about the world. Again, when when it comes right down to it, if someone's saying that you need to hate this group or that group of people because of X, Y, and Z, and the reality is, is they're just trying to live their lives, that's a problem. So, so what do we do about it, right? How do we reasonably deal with conspiracy theories? And the answer is, I think, again, not definitive, just my opinion. The first step is to recognize how and why they are amplified. So a lot of us spend a lot of time online and it's all algorithms and money. Algorithms boost anything that gets a lot of engagement and that skews negative a lot of the time. Uh, I've said it before, the amount of time you spend, any one thing 
directly correlates to how much money that thing can produce. And there's a lot of money that can be made by getting people into that ecosystem. I mean, literally, ads are everywhere. There's ads that don't even look like ads. There's fake technology or tools. I mean, I've seen 5G blockers and snake oil cures and supplements that promise this, that, and the other thing, basically, all advertised on reputable websites. And, you know, you can buy anything on Amazon, basically. People sell books, they do appearances, they have courses, they have donations for charities that deal with these things or whatever that are just basically money-making operations they do fundraising okay what else my my suggestion first off is don't call someone an idiot whatever belief they have if it's something that you don't happen to share doesn't matter don't treat people like assholes unnecessarily and don't treat them like idiots i think that's just kind of common sense right you're going to have to use your own sense of the situation before you decide on who you're going to engage with is a something you know, this is something that a lot of us, I think, forget at some point, and that is that we don't need to call out everything we see all the time. Sometimes it's pointless, sometimes it's not safe, and sometimes it's none of our business. If it's online, it's even worse because you could be yelling at a computer. I think I saw a stat a little while ago that bots make up something like three quarters of the online traffic these days or something ridiculous. Don't hold me to that fraction. I could be way off, but it's, it's a lot. Percentage is pretty significant. And you better believe that they're fanning the flames to keep everybody occupied. Those bots serve a purpose. You know, people don't just put bots in play because they're mischievous kids just trying to get a laugh. No, there there are reasons why they use them. And it's all about driving money-making activities. Anyway, if you choose to talk to somebody, right? So let's say a family, a friend, or whatever, who is you know, kind of neck deep in this stuff. I think there's some basic ground rules that, that can help, um, in addition to kind of not insulting them, because I like to think of this as sort of a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, right? Like I'm, I'm not a therapist or anything like that, but I've got enough experience with it to understand how, how the mechanisms work. And the main thing is that it's not about how you feel on the outside. It's about what the person is going through and then how to help them see things in a different way. So make it less about you on the outside and more about them and their well-being because that's really what you care about. If you actually care about a human being, if you care about somebody and you want to see them do better, that's what you're usually going to be focused on. All right. Um okay. Good lord. Yeah. Um a little soapbox, right? So what did I write down here? Okay. So prevention, it's a pretty good strategy, right? So if you see someone starting to get sucked into conspiracy theories, I think showing them some of the information available that contradicts what they're looking at is, is never a bad idea. But again, it's more about giving them a broader understanding than showing them that they're wrong. And if you've got kids, so if it's a child who's young and doesn't really have any experience or context, teaching them media literacy from a young age, right? How not to trust everything they read or hear on the internet, that not everybody tells the truth, approaching things with a skeptical mind and a willingness to look at reputable sources of information, not just Joe's repository of secret government documents and pictures of aliens or whatever, <laughs> like teaching, teaching a person what you can generally rely on to be factual or more mostly factual as opposed to something that looks good but is nonsense. 
you know, being able to identify and classify that super good skill to have, and it's going to serve you well your whole life. And again, if you never learned it, it's never too late to learn it now. I mean, I still struggle. I, I still get taken by fake news stories. Like in Canada, we have this news article or this, uh, this publication, a satirical publication called the Beaverton. And every now and again, I'll see a, I'll see a headline on Reddit and I'll just groan because like, oh God, here we go. And then you look at the link and it's the Beaverton and you're like, oh, for crying out loud, I can't believe I almost fell for that. Right. So it's not that hard, even when you do have the skills to get taken in a little bit, right? It happens to me and I'm sure it's, it's happened to others. So after prevention comes, you know, the establishing common ground and expressing empathy part. So one of the best ways I've always found to build trust with a person is to show them that you've either been where they are, or you understand why they might believe one thing or another. I mean, I believe conspiracy theories when I was younger, I told you about those a little bit a while ago, and it's sometimes it's hard to admit that I was wrong or that I was duped, but honestly, it gets easier when the person I'm talking to is willing to put themselves in the same place. And when I, when I put myself in the same place as someone else who's going through some things, generally speaking, that creates a little bit of understanding and then that builds trust. And then you, we can go from there. And again, this isn't about winning or losing. I'm not in a competition with somebody that I'm actually trying to help. I'm I'm just trying to be a resource and a mentor. So if you're going to work with somebody and commit to working with them for a while, it's it's not like you can just have a single conversation, pat yourself on the back, wash your hands of the situation and say, okay, well, you know, that's solved. Look at me. I did such a great thing, right? It doesn't accomplish anything. It, it takes more than one go because you're literally trying to change how another person sees the world. And that is not an easy thing to do. So making sure that you're there to talk and offer advice and keep their perspective balanced is just as important as showing them why the conspiracy theory that they're looking at isn't correct. And remember to prioritize the person's health and well-being, you know, because it's ultimately about helping someone else. It's not about making yourself feel better. If that's what you're in it for, you're not going to help and you might actually make things worse. You can also counter misinformation with good information. I mean, as always, information is a big part of everyday life and making sure that you're giving people access to good, reliable, easy to understand information is important. The worst thing that you can do is cite an academic article that is hard to read or needlessly complicated. I've read plenty of textbooks and oftentimes the authors are trying to sound intelligent by using big, really long words that no one uses in regular conversation all passive language and jargon and garbage. And honestly, plain language is the way to go. People appreciate the honesty and the directness. Don't dance around in circles. Remember how I said conspiracy theories have great PR? One thing that doesn't have great PR is knowledge. I mean, I don't know why, but it seems like we struggle a great deal with presenting facts in a way that, that are easy to digest. Because it's always... It's always somebody in a suit with a tie who has that academic sort of feel to them. You know what I mean? Oh, look at me. I'm so important. Blah, 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 blah. And it just, it doesn't relate well to an average person. So if we could figure out a way to get less of that and more of just kind of like the, the average Joe explaining things in a way that makes sense, some kind of bearded truck driving dude who's just like, yeah, damn right. The earth is round and here's why. 
I think that makes more sense than than a scientist who hasn't been outside in a year and a half. I'm not I'm not crapping on scientists. I think they do incredibly important work, but again, you know, not necessarily the most relatable of of people sometimes. Anyway, um where was I? Good lord. So, plain language is important and then the other thing is is that if you don't know something, admit it, don't lie, don't bullshit. Cause that's just going to undermine everything you're trying to accomplish. But if you acknowledge that there are definitely parts of the puzzle that aren't available, you know, that's fine. I think it recognizes that we don't have all the information that we need as is the possibility that something sketchy is going on behind the scenes. But the important part is to remember that usually there is a pretty big leap between what is known and what the conspiracy theory says is the truth. And Within that leap is a disconnect. Camera captured something unexplainable, therefore aliens. You know, one does not flow from the other. There is there's a vast amount of information in between those two points that could very that could have drastic effects on how like on on what the truth is. Remember, you don't have to rule out every other possibility for something to be true. You just need evidence to support your position. And lastly, if you're struggling or need advice about any of this stuff, please consider seeking assistance from a qualified professional in your area. Look up some helplines. There's a Canadian Mental Health Association or Kids Help Phone. Uh, in the States, there's the Anti-Defamation League. They seem to have some pretty good resources. And there's lots more out there. So by all means, you know, if you're struggling or if you're not sure, check it out, Google it. And there's there's tons of information that you can access and resources that can help. Um, and then last. The last thing I will say on this topic, because I think I've probably talked about it for long enough, is boundaries. So this is a hard lesson to learn, but if nothing works and the person you care about goes down that rabbit hole, at some point we need to look at the situation, decide how much we're going to put up. So if you're in a situation like that, the main thing is, is you're trying to help somebody else, but also are you safe? right? Is your health and well-being suffering as a result of what's happening? We do need to prioritize. And sometimes that means taking a step back. That doesn't mean writing people off. It just means making sure that we're taking care of ourselves as well. Anyway, as always, take the good and leave the bad is what I say. Let me know what you think. I'm sure there's tons of points I missed in there and feel free to highlight those if you'd like at today's just okay at gmail.com because again, it's it's almost impossible to talk about a subject like this in 45 minutes or whatever it's been. Anyway, before I do my, uh, my book read, I do have a tip of the day and this is, this came out of Valentine's actually. So I love my wife. I really do. She's a wonderful human being. And I was thinking about this. So I bought her a mug. I mean, I got her, I got her like a, a picture and some other things for, for Valentine's day, but I bought her a mug just as kind of like a, a little thing. And this mug has some Parts and stuff on it. Right. And she really likes it and she's super happy and she was super excited to have a coffee in it over the weekend. And unfortunately she dropped it and chipped it, broke it. And she was super upset about it. And so I had to go to the grocery store anyway. So I just said, I'll be back in 15 minutes. And I hopped over to the grocery store, picked up a couple of groceries and then grabbed a couple replacement mugs that matched the one that broke. Because again, this wasn't an expensive gift or anything like that. It was just a little, a little something to say, Hey, I, you know, here's some cheesy stuff. And when I was checking out, 
the cashier was looking at me like, oh, you know, like you're getting, you're getting mugs. And so I told him the story and then I casually just mentioned off the top of my head, I was just like, you know, it's the little things that matter, the daily reminders that you're giving your partner that you care about them and you care about their well-being, and that you want them to be happy. Those little things over time matter a lot more in, in my view than the big once a year display of affection. Right. I mean, Again, my, my wife's personality, I, I know her very well. And so I know that she's not going to like those big displays because she's not a flashy person. Like if I bought her a $3,000 ring or something, she'd be pissed and rightfully so because A, she doesn't like jewelry like that. And B, there's some, so many other things that we could do <laughs> besides put it into a rock and, and stick it on her finger. So if I didn't do the daily stuff, I honestly don't think that we we would be in as good a shape as we are. And so, yeah, if I was going to offer advice to anybody in terms of sort of relationshiping, it would just be to remember that as tired as we are because we're working our asses off and we're exhausted and all the rest of it, don't forget to show the person who puts up with you that you care as often as you can. That means doing the dishes when you're, you know, not scheduled to or doing the laundry or vacuuming the floor or whatever it is, right? Just helping out around the house so that the other person has a bit more free time or giving them a back rub or listening to them talk about their day or whatever it is, or getting them a little something or making them dinner. It's not about the big deal stuff. It's about the little things that remind them you've got their back and you're there to, to make their life as easy as possible. And what happens is, is that you sort of have a give and take, right? You do some stuff for them. They do some stuff for you. It balances out in the end. If you're with a quality person, it'll balance itself in the end and you're good to go. And if, if they don't do that, if they don't value those things, if you're the one who's constantly sort of showing affection and the other person doesn't either reciprocate or doesn't care. And the only thing they, if they only care about the sort of stereotypical attraction, you got to ask yourself, right? Is that the right person for you? So. Anyway, food for thought, as always, it's just my opinion, so you don't have to take it seriously if you don't want to, and I'm sure it's full of holes, and if you want to poke a few, by all means, go ahead. All right, I am going to wander off for a little bit. I've got to grab my book and read the rest of chapter four, and then that'll be the podcast. All right, I'm back, and this is the second half of chapter four of Lancet my science fiction novel, which is available on Amazon as well as basically everywhere else. But Amazon is the best prices. So probably get it there. I'll put a link down below. Otherwise you can just find it on my website, donnermontgomery.com. All right. Last time I ended with prioritize. That's what Gracie would be telling me. As far as I can tell, our survivor is alive and stable. So my job is to keep her that way until the doctor gets here. And if that means leaving her in a tank, it's kept her alive so far then I'd best make sure the wreck is safe enough to do that, which means I need to check the reactor and make sure the hull's not leaking. I leave the infirmary and do a once-over of the cabins, dismantled and empty. A little further back, I can see scorch marks and ice around a twisted hatch. Weapons compartment must be through there, where the ship's belly got torn open. Thankfully, the bulkhead held. Beyond that is the engine compartment. The remote displays are all dead. When I plug my fab into the auxiliary output, I get green lights everywhere which means no containment issues, hazardous gases, or temperature spikes. Combat-grade reactors are designed to take quite a bit of punishment, but it's still easier to breathe knowing that this one survived impact. 
I cycle the door manually and pop my head in, doing what I can to make sure that my light hits every recess and cranny. No bodies. I've been from stem to stern, and apart from the one in the infirmary, there's no sign of any crew whatsoever. Very strange. I hear a pop and then a bang of metal on metal. The sounds are muffled through the intervening walls, but I have a sinking feeling I know where they came from. An instant later, something squelches, heavy and liquid. Oh, fuck. I scramble back the way I came. The glow sticks make it easier to spot hazards, but it's still hard going, even when I know where to put my feet. Back in the infirmary, I find the woman face down on the floor, covered in a puddle of steaming goo. Smells awful, even with my breather. That doesn't matter. She's wet with no protection against the cold. I slosh over, skidding as I go. My boots have metal cleats on the soles, but the liquid's thick and cloying, gelatinous. She's hacking gunk out of her lungs and bleeding heat fast. Immediate danger. She's so thin. Her body's consumed itself to stay alive. She shudders. Shock or pain? No idea. I send bits of miscellaneous shit flying trying to find something I can use as a thermal blanket. I wouldn't even know where to look in this mess. Pull off my mask so she can see my face. It's going to be okay. I try to be reassuring. Her body is still hooked into a dozen hoses and intravenous lines. She's trying to push herself onto her hands and knees, but doesn't have the strength. Those dark, dark eyes catch mine and my stomach flip-flops with what I see in them. Bleeding? Rage? Hope? My sled has the right gear, but it's outside the airlock. She might not survive if I make a run for supplies. She's barely hanging on now. I pull off my jacket and feel the cold bite in. I can only imagine how much worse it is for her. I pull off my gloves, do my best to be gentle as I put my hand under her to lift her off the floor. God, she's light. I remove the lines and see blood bead where the needers come out. Can't deal with it now. Cold's going to kill her if she stays exposed like this, and I can't afford to be shy. I wipe off as much of the goop as I can. Gets under my fingernails. She watches me the whole time. Sorry is all I can think to say as I wrap her in my coat. I'm not a big man, but she's paper thin and can't weigh any more than a child. The park is huge on her tiny frame. I don't bother with the zipper. Just wrap it tight and crank up the filaments. The heat should keep her core temp up. Nothing I can do about her legs. But at least my gloves will keep her toes from freezing off. I'm going to move you now. I'm riding on adrenaline as I drape her body over my shoulders. Her head rolls against my arm as I climb. Step, breathe, step, wobble, step, the whole way back. Snow's blowing in through the hole I made in the hull. Thick and choking. Coating everything. The weather's turned. At least the winch line is still where it's supposed to be. I work her into the sling. It's just a padded strap that rests across her back and under her arms. Clips together in front. I tighten it too much by the way she groans. But I don't think she can support herself and I don't want her sliding out. I hook on next and send a lift command to Evelyn. We're not moving. Son of a bitch. The winch should still work. It's only a meter and a half, but I can't see any way out. I don't think I can climb with a woman on my back. Come on. I resend the retract command. Give the line a hard tug. Up. Up. It jerks me off my feet. I'm not ready. Bounce my shoulder against a hard edge and starts a spinning. Pain will come later. But we're ascending, and that's all that matters. Shit's bad outside. Gray and dark. I can't see anything. Wind is whipping the snow hard, and the chill is seeping deep through my thermals. The sled's already buried. Should have set up that tarp. I grab the tripod legs and pull us the rest of the way out. Thankfully, I don't have to unhook. Evelyn's responding properly now. Must have rebooted. I dig out the sled. The woman's bare skin is in the snow. I know how that burns. She started to shake and her lips are blue. If she's not unconscious yet, she will be soon. Blankets. I need blankets. I tear open the emergency case and wrap her up. Then set her down, strap her in, and mash a metrics pad onto her chest. I can't tell if she's still breathing. My fab isn't screaming, so she must be. 
I'm more worried about her core temperature. It's dropped three degrees. Still, I lean in close to her face and shine my light. Her eyes are closed. Prying them open shows me dilated pupils. What's left of her muscles are contracting. She's hypothermic. I will be too if I'm not careful. Fuck. My orientation's shit, but I don't need it right now. I just grab the sled and tell Evelyn to reel us in. Two meters, five, ten. Evelyn's floodlights aren't on. They're supposed to be on automatic in low light. I don't like this. But I see her foreleg, then her body resolve through the blinding snow. Close enough. I pull the sled around, back and open the loading hatch, then drag us both inside. Covered in snow, exhausted, breathing in gulps and shivering. But we're in. All right, that's the end of chapter four. Thank you all for listening in, and I will be back next time with another episode of the podcast. Until then, I hope you have a lovely day, a lovely week, and so on. Be safe, be cool, be happy, and I'll catch you next time.